One of the great things about hosting a podcast about books that features a new episode every week is that in the beginning of each season, I don't know where my reading journey will take me, but I'm game for the mystery. Joining Book of the Month is kind of the same thing. You know you're heading into new territory, and it's going to be an adventure. Book of the Month is a subscription that helps readers discover new books and helps writers by promoting emerging authors alongside established ones. Here's how it works. Each month, Book of the Month members get to choose from a curated selection of new and early release books. Your pick gets shipped right to your door, and shipping is always free. There's so much excitement knowing that one of your picks just might be that next book to make it into your top 10 most favorite books ever list. And if you like to listen to your books, there are options for you. Book of the Month just launched a curated audiobook option, and you can listen to your selection directly in the app. Here's what's in store for March. Annie Bott by Sierra Greer. Anita DeMonte Laughs Last by Sochil Gonzalez, plus several other titles. I chose the memoir Hereafter by Amy Lynn because I'm interested in how people deal with grief and bring their insights to the page. For a limited time, you can get your first book of the month for just $9.99 using the code CHIRP. You can sign up at bookofthemonth.com. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. Coming up, an interview with Michael Kleber Diggs, author of the poetry collection, Worldly Things. So much of the parenting that I was raised in is rooted in fear for how the world will treat the Black child. And there's a sad logic to it, but it's, it's logical. We'll be back with Michael Kleber Diggs in just a bit. First, I want to say to you, thank you for listening. The episode you're about to tune into represents eight plus years of dedication and perseverance for producing this show. In addition to conversations that go into depth about a writer's work and obsessions, this show and every interview it features aims to embody the values of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection. I invite you to join me in this journey as a First Draft patron, which gives you access to cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, ad-free, pitch-free episodes, and writing tips from my guests. You can become a supporter by going to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash firstdraftwriters. Any amount is welcome, but for $6 a month, you receive thank you gifts on a monthly basis. Plus, when you donate to First Draft, you are joining the community of writers and readers who support conversations like the one you are about to hear. 
With your donation, you are saying yes to continuing the space of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection that each show reaches to achieve. You are the scaffolding that holds up this platform that shares the insights and challenges of the writing life. So please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. And let's be honest, there is so much free content out there. In fact, what you are about to listen to is free, but it is not without expense in hard costs and labor to make. Don't get me wrong, producing these interviews is indeed a labor of love, but there is an incredible amount of labor involved, time and effort, planning and schedule wrangling across time zones, from Colorado to New York to London to Tel Aviv to Auckland and back again. And it all adds up to the creation of this show and the archive, which has more than 300 episodes you can dive into. I put so much care and effort into this show, and I hope you can tell with every episode. The process begins when I select a book, contact the author, schedule the interview. Then I read the book, take notes, conduct research, have the conversation, and edit the show. This takes equipment, organization, more late nights than you can imagine, and a lot of heart and sweat to come to fruition each week. And there is no staff. I am the show from start to finish. I know you may not be in front of a computer right now, so why not write a note on your hand or set the alarm on your phone to remind yourself to donate to First Draft when you get home? Please beat the odds of having to listen to this seven times before you join the First Draft community. Go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Please stay tuned at the end of this show. I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell everyone you know to subscribe. And thank you for your support and for being here with me today, right now, in this moment, and on to the show. My guest today is Michael Kleber Diggs, the author of the poetry collection Worldly Things, which was awarded the 2021 Max Ritvo Poetry Prize. He was born and raised in Kansas City and now lives in St. Paul, Minnesota. Kleber Diggs is an attorney and teaches poetry and creative nonfiction through the Minnesota Prison Writers Workshop. His work has appeared in the Rumpus, North Dakota Quarterly, Rain Taxi, and Waterstone Review, among others. Worldly Things is broken up into three sections and investigates love and loss, family history, police violence on black lives, and the way America fails its own people. The collection calls on memory and image, direct experience and insight into our culture to create poems of sorrow and hope in a future filled with kindness. We began our discussion with me asking Michael Kleber Diggs this question. So this collection, Worldly Things, some of the things that I see going on in here, and feel free to correct me if I'm wrong, but you write about family, you write about the death of your father who was shot, um, he was a dentist, you write about your mother now, you write about gardening and this sense of fecundity, which is what I found in, in part one. Of, of sort of beginnings and bringing people along with you. And then part two, that section feels more grounded to me in, in some deep pain and our society and really looking at who we are and in particular how we treat people of color. And then the third part feels very earthy and rooted and generational 
And you talk a lot about in the whole collection about sort of the, the fragile tethers that hold us together and race in our society and police brutality and how difficult it can be every day to, to love this country and to wake up every day knowing what's going on. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah. I'm actually feeling mildly emotional from a place of joy for such a keen read. Um, I, I, I started writing the poems that make up the collection with no thought at all about a collection. Um, I write toward what's on my mind and what captivates me. And my mentor, Juliet Patterson, a, a poet I admire a great deal, um, asked me after we were visiting uh, to, to print the poems that I'd written in the last three to five years. And so I did that. I opened the folders and I printed all the poems. And there's something about a stack of poems that makes you start thinking, maybe I have a collection in here. And I spent quite a lot of time trying to find the through line, trying to find how these disparate pieces fit together. And in conversation with poets and friends who I admire and who had more experience in the work of building a manuscript of poems than I had, um, I started to get a sense for how it might all work. And for me, I started to think about three conversations that I wanted to have. The first was, this is who I'm from, and, and a very general introduction to my family. This is where I live, by which I mean a racialized America. And the third is, this is how I see the world. This is what I desire. This is what I imagine of the human condition. And so much of that is invested in how close we are and how far away and how close we could be if we could just see each other's humanity. And uh, it means a lot to me that you that you took that away from the collection. Those are the conversations that I want to have. And yes, it is difficult here. Um, it's quite difficult. I, of course, am reminded that my life is significantly easier than my grandparents' lives were. And I, I try to find some hope in that. I I also look at my daughter and her friends in that generation, and I find some hope in the progress they seem poised to make. And I, I want to write toward all of those things, the past, the present, and the future. Your poems, although, I, I mean, I didn't analyze them poem by poem in terms of if you were speaking to women or men, you definitely have a focus on yourself, your father, the black men who've been killed by police, but you also have your, your, your wife and your daughter and your mother in there, but the book is dedicated to all women. Yes. Tell me about that. Yeah. Well, I think there's a couple things there. So I lost my father when I was eight and I was raised by my mother, um, I had two amazing grandparents. I had four amazing grandparents. I had two amazing grandparents in Kansas who took us in while my mom kind of saw after selling my dad's practice and a lot of the the work that needed to be done to, to get her in a position to, to be with us and to raise us uh, and give us the attention and care that we needed. Um, my mother, my her mother, 
um, my maternal grandmother, um, my mentor, Juliet Patterson, my daughter. Uh, these women are um, foundational for me. And I, I really feel that as a result of my upbringing, I really kind of lean toward matriarchal um, methods of care. And my doctors are mostly women and I just, I think I feel most comfortable um, within that kind of model. I, I've been writing lately and, and I write a little bit in worldly things about masculinity and the desire for a new model for fathers and men. And in, in a lot of ways, what I'm writing toward is a tenderness that I see more often embodied uh, in the strong women who um, have meant a lot to me, both as a person and as a writer. Well, your poem in your first section, and we'll talk a little bit more about the first section in, in just a minute, but your poem in the first section, Ode to My Mother's Face, I, I was wondering if you could read it. When I read it, I started crying. And I think the poem on itself is very powerful, but it also was built up to because I knew more about what your family had gone through by the time I got to this poem. Yeah, thank you. Ode to my mother's face. Crowned by carob and silver down, lovely across her Oklahoma earthen glow, my mother's face is an ovate frame with apostrophe eyebrows possessing the massive planets of her eyes. I love her countenance captured in a photo from 50 years ago before her lover was killed and not replaced, before the joys and blood of motherhood. A powdery base against her sharp white uniform, a tidy nurse's cap resting comfortably on her nest of ideas, her graduate smile, her tirelessness, but not like I love her face at 80 her ears unchanged in size, the knot she owns above her heavy glasses, sad growths crowding her eyes, deep folds arching away from her widening nose, around her skeptical mouth like parentheses, staging the lush curtains of her lips, the ones letting you have just enough show to realize you're missing something. My mother is the lone freckle on her right cheek, put in place by providence, a period, wanting the next sentence. Tell me about writing that. You know, I was, um, I was writing a lot about my dad, and I was in a poetry group, and one of my group mates said, um, write, you should write more about your dad. And and I had the thought almost immediately, no, I should I should write about my mom. And uh, and I walked out of that meeting thinking that's what I'll do. I'll write about my mom. And then for me, the the challenge with beginning any poem is is finding the way in. Once I find the way in, um, then I then I feel like I have the path to to the destination that I don't know I'll arrive to. So I was at a an event with my mom we were watching my, my daughter dance and i was sitting next to my mom and i was just looking at her face 
and loving it and loving her and deciding that I wanted to write about my mom's face. And of course, in the process of doing that, I, I started to think about my mom uh, as a person and all the things that she's been through. And, you know, for me, especially as I'm older now, and I have the experience of being a parent and I have the good fortune of parenting with a spectacular co-parent. And we are two healthy people raising one child. And my mom was one person raising two children on her own suddenly after a, a, a staggering loss. And um, the challenges of that and keeping all of those things together and grieving and raising two boys and continuing her education and like all the things that she uh, did and had to do and 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 all of that I think is kind of evident in her countenance. The, the other part for me is as a family, we don't really talk about my dad a lot. We talk about my dad as a person and we talk about him in favorable terms. Uh, he was smart, he was good at baseball, things like that. And um, we don't talk a lot about what it was like to lose him and how it affected us. And um, my mom, and, and I, I, it's not that I, I blame her for that, but I was spending some time in the poem kind of considering her privacy, her, her desire not to speak about it. And, um, and, and I, I found as I was writing the poem, I found myself in a different kind of conversation with my mom, not actually rooted in desire, but I hope rooted in understanding that um, th that was a real traumatic event for her, for all of us, of course, and how we respond to that trauma is uniquely ours. And um, I wanted to kind of honor that and respect it and also say that I, I see you, you know, just to say to my mom, I see. What was her reaction to the poem? You know, um, he was published uh, initially in a publication uh, called Poetry City, and um, I she read it on online, and she said that she liked it, and and she left it at that. You know, and I think that that's kind of on brand for her, and quite frankly, on brand for me is not pressing. Like I didn't say say more, please, or I'd love to talk to you about it. Um, I just said thank you. So we continued in the traditions that kind of surround the pool. So in part one, we did learn about your father, that he was shot in his dental practice when you were just before you turned eight years old, that you were born um, 11 days before Martin Luther King was shot. We learn, at least I think, that you like gardening and yeah. that you're really looking at the world around you and your place in it as both a black man and an educated black man and um, a father and an American in the poem, Superman and my brother, super Spider-Man and me is where we, I feel like that's where we really learn your, your origin story and sort of gives perspective on who you are in the world. And I'm wondering if we can talk about this poem and if you want to read it, you can. Yeah. So first by way of background, I'd been writing poetry for a while and, and kind of writing about a lot of things except the death of my father. 
and I've been captivated by the squirt guns. In the poem, there are my brother and I get squirt guns, uh, and they're they're different than the squirt guns that all the other kids on the street have. And I wanted to write about those because I thought that was kind of funny and interesting. And then all of a sudden, here was my dad, and here was his death, and uh, I guess. I found myself ready to talk about it and write about it. And so I did. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll read the poem. Superman and my brother, Spider-Man and me. My brother and I were born to educated middle-class parents 11 days after Martin Luther King's assassination. Our home aspired to nonviolence, no gun culture, no guns. Even then, folks knew black boys in a white city needed more than their parents' desire to stay safe. They understood about misunderstandings. Even then, black boys were shot in parks playing games children play. So when we turned eight, instead of squirt guns, we got puffy superhero heads that sprayed water from their mouths when we pulled the trigger. We delighted in comic book legends spitting on our friends at our behest. It was white boys on the block with their pistols and revolvers that always shot harder and farther against Superman and my brother, Spider-Man and me. We gave as good as we caught until we were exhausted. 1976, the bicentennial year. Summer suggested it would never end but autumn always comes. One month before our birthday, our father was shot and killed in his office. He was a dentist. I tell you that for a reason. I use educated and middle class for a reason. I don't want you to think our dad had it coming. I want you to focus on something else. Our parents' designs were undone anyway. There is no sanctuary in the theater. Lost for months in our bedroom, our desperate island, we began to confront a loss that reveals itself still. Spent our allowance on comic books, dreamed of rough places made plain, tried to hew hope from a mountain of despair. Do you want to say anything else about that poem? You know, only that uh, in the ending there, there's an Easter egg of sort. I kind of borrowed the Hugh Hope from a Mountain of Despair idea from Martin Luther King um, and wanted to just go back to that part of it. And and I also wanted to say that that poem uh, is really important to me. Um, It was the time when I first started to talk about my father's death. And I I think in some ways, looking back on it now, that I was writing my way toward that moment, um, getting myself ready. I think as a, as a writer, but also emotionally, um, knowing that to write it might mean to share it and to share it might mean to read it, to find a way to read that poem uh, in a room with other people and not have my voice crack or have it crack and continue on. 
uh, to just allow myself to feel um, the weight of that experience and the challenges of expressing it and, and know that I would be okay. The publishing industry is a system. Books are mirrors in people's experiences. And in season two of Missing Pages, We'll take a look at what happens when an old system faces new challenges. This is what happens when you involve money. I'm Beth Ann Patrick, literary critic, writer, and your host of season two of the Missing Pages podcast, a show that gives you a ringside seat to some of the juiciest conflicts in the book world. In season two, we're turning up the dial. She was in pretty much a stratosphere all around. The term is academic fraud. Teachers in Florida had to cover up their bookshelves for fear of getting sanctioned or fired. We'll dig into these stories with industry insiders and talk to authors like Jody Picot for their firsthand experiences. You can childproof your world, but you can't worldproof your child. It's time we find these missing pages and return them to their stories. Listen and subscribe to season two wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Did something happen in your life where you felt like all these poems about your dad or wanting to write about him occurred to you or, or just started happening regardless of your conscious mind? You know, I wish I could say. I I wonder if it was being a parent and... Um, Reflecting back on my experience as a child being parented, thinking more about my mother and father, I, I can't say for certain that that's the answer, but I, I do feel like a lot of what was happening in my writing about my father and my mother was happening around the time that my child became a conversant, thoughtful, inquisitive being and wanting to be open and truthful with her about my experiences and uh, my childhood and myself as a person, not just as a father, but also as a person, I think probably transported its way to the writing desk. But I also really hold open the possibility that it was more mysterious and organic than that. That's, I, you know, I, I, you know, I start thinking about those funny squirt guns. And then I realized that, that the thought that the reason I was thinking about the squirt guns might have something to do with the fact that I, I wanted to write about my father. I do definitely remember taking that poem to the poetry group with, with Juliet that was led by Juliet Patterson and included friends who had written alongside for years and, and everyone being stunned. Your father was killed? Is that what you're saying? Um, because I just never talked about it. and. Um, yeah, I think, I think that there's something kind of mysterious and organic at work there as well. Do you know why he was killed? No. Um, I know what the newspaper says. Uh, in the newspaper, it said that a man came in and asked, of all things, for antibiotics. My father said that he didn't have them. And the man shot him. 
and that was reported by my father's office manager and dental assistant who um, survived the attack. And um, I don't have any reason to doubt that that's the case. Um, I do sometimes wonder if there was more to it than that. I have started to kind of research into it. Um, I've also found myself, which is by the way, agonizing and frustrating work. It's not archived records are difficult to find. And it took me a long time to find the name of the man who killed my father. And then um, his, he has a very, very, very common first name and a very, very, very common last name. So that, that also made the research challenging. But the only reason I would want to do that is to know more about my father. Um, I'm, I'm not entirely interested in the circumstances around it, although I suppose having access to that would be helpful to me in some ways. I mainly am motivated by a desire to know more about my dad. And, and my thought is that through that, um, I would get additional information about who he was. So you didn't have to live through a trial or anything when you were that age? No, no. And in fact, so we lived in Kansas City. And not long after um, our father died, my brother and I moved to Wichita and lived with our grandparents while my mom stayed in Kansas City and, and dealt with all of that. Well, you write in, in another poem in the first section. It's called, I Love My Neighbors As I Love Myself. I learned of love in harsh commands, curt rebukes, and tired, ravenous hands. Tell me about that, that line. Yeah. Uh, so I'm actually thinking a bit about this parenting um, and the way Black children were often parented uh, in the 70s. Um, it just was a different model uh, than, than I think we see at the same, to the same extent today. My mom was strict and uh, unyielding. She was, uh, she's very clear about how she wanted to raise her boys. I also look back on it now as her way of thinking, I'm not going to let this get out of control. She was actively interested in the specific details of our days in ways that were maddening back then that I find kind of charming now. But my mom was strict and she was a spank. She was a parent who would give you a spanking and um, she was a person who would sometimes be angry with us, disappointed, and she would voice that uh, without hesitation in, in very clear terms. And I found myself um, as a father really working to find a different way, not so much because um, I, I didn't want to be my mom or I wanted to kind of get back at her, but more because I had the ability to do it. I had luxuries that my mom didn't have. And some of that is the benefit of time and what we learn um, with, with information. And the other is, you know, as I shared, uh, a partner in parenting and conversation with her and the ability to say, how do we want to approach this? And how do we want to parent? And, um, you know, there's, there's another poem in the collection and, and I know that we'll talk about it later because we'll talk about the, you know, the difficult things that we write sometimes, but there's a, a poem in the collection called seismic activities 
where I have this moment as a father where I set my daughter down mean is how I describe it. I put her down on the couch rough in a rough way. And my daughter was very young when that happened. And I found myself just thinking, I don't, I don't want a parent like this. I don't want my child to be afraid of me or um, concerned about how I'll react. And in that moment, I, I really felt kind of adrift. Like I knew that I wanted a new model and I had no idea where to go to find it. My wife was a pretty good uh, resource. Um, she grew up in a different kind of home and um, with no yelling and no spanking or anything like that. And so a, a lot of what I modeled fatherhood on, I, I learned from my wife and also from my mom, but just um, thinking about different models of parenting and um, how it was, how it is today, um, and the hope that as we continue on, we'll, we'll get even more tender and gentle and patient as parents. And a lot of what comes up for me when I'm having that conversation is how generational our traumas and our experiences are, um, how many of us parent the way that we were parented, um, and how hard it is to break free of that. I, I think among the more difficult things I've had to do in my life is find a different way to parent. Um, I find myself writing about that quite a bit, and I absolutely do not intend that as an indictment of my parents. I intend it as an indictment of the world in which they were raised and how fearful they were that um, boys out of control would be annihilated. Um, so much of the parenting that I was raised in is rooted in fear for how the world will treat the black child. And there's a sad logic to it, but it's, it's logical harsh at home so that you can be safe in the world is not something that only I experienced. Um, there are children who are experiencing that today. Not long ago, I was at the barbershop hearing a discussion about spanking, and a man said, the prisons are full of people who weren't spanked growing up. And uh, I have a little bit of experience in prisons, not so much that I feel I can speak on it with authority, but um, because I, 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 because I teach creative writing in correctional facilities, and and I thought no, it's it's actually the other way. The prisons are full of people who were parented horribly, and I want to be clear: I was not parented horribly. I was parented specifically, and the specific mode I was parented in is very familiar to people to black people who are my age. And you know, I grew up at a time when you could give the school permission to give you a spanking. I know in some states that's still to give your child a spanking. And I, I know in some states that's still the case. But uh, it's just kind of thinking about that mode of parenting and, and, and setting it up for a conversation that I wanted to have about doing things differently. I'm wondering if you're close to your brother. You write about him in many of these poems as children, your twins. So you've had these similar, very similar experiences. And I was just wondering about him now and if some of these things you think about is also 
coming up for him are also coming up for him. Yeah, I am. I am close to my brother and I talk to him or we text almost every day. We don't often talk about deep things, although from time to time we do. Um, and I like to check in with him and, and ask how he's doing. And, and the same is true. He likes to check in with me. We're pretty different people, um, which is like the wonderful thing about siblings. What's the saying? Same house, different neighborhood type of thing. Uh, but my brother's also an artist. He's a photographer and uh, he lives in Kansas City. Um, and we, t- we talk almost every day, usually by text message. But he, um, my brother has a much better memory than I do. Memory is in general, fascination for me. Um, I say that I have a terrible memory and then from time to time, details come forward that had been lost to me previously. Uh, My brother and I had a conversation once by phone about the day our father was killed. Um, We were both in, I think in second grade, although I can't really remember what grade we're in. and we were taking the Iowa test of basic skills, which was a common assessment test at the time. And I remember looking at some point back at the classroom door and seeing that our mother was there. And I remember seeing her face. And I remember thinking something bad has happened and then thinking it must be dad. I remember having those two thoughts. And I was talking to my brother about that day And he said, do you remember the ice cream lady? And I said, no. And my brother said, okay. Which is, you know, you're you're probably getting a flavor for how our family interacts. But my brother didn't say, here's who the ice cream lady was. He said, okay. And I think he said, okay, because he wanted me to to work that out on my own. And I went to Kansas City at one point to do a little bit of research on um, my dad and his criminal case. And it was uh, one of those research trips where I was frustrated at every turn. But on the way back, as I was driving back, I'm like, oh, my goodness. The ice cream lady was a woman in our neighborhood who was fond of sherbet colored clothing and wore a lot of jewelry that would jingle. Uh, and we, our nickname for her was the ice cream lady. And she was there beside our mom at the door um, the day that she came to, to tell us, um, to take us out of school to tell us what had happened. And my brother has the ability to recall specific, specific details like that in a way that I claim not to have. And yet, um, here it was kind of unearthed by this frustrating research trip, which has led me to think that I probably remember more than I think that I do and that the skill I have and have cultivated is suppression. That um, I retain what allows me to be uh, happier and functional and, and avoid some kind of breakdown or collapse and everything else I've locked away so far that uh, I can walk around it pretty easily. Um, so I, I've always been really thankful to my brother for, for that conversation and for all the conversations that we have, um, where we kind of get into the details. 
of things like that. It's interesting because in your poem, after you left, you are talking about the death of your father and your memory. And you write in the beginning, the weight of your absence became a black hole revolving around my memory of you itself, a black hole. And in the poem, you, you basically talk about how the, the whole entire universe is askew because of this loss and because you miss your father. And so it seems like in some ways the way that you are talking about your memory is you don't necessarily know all the details, but you certainly know the impact. Right. I, I had for a long time this argument that, you know, there there are definitely easier ages to lose a parent. Like if you lose a parent when you're 60, that feels easier than when you're six. Um, but if you have to lose a parent while you're a child, I, I, for a time I had this argument that eight is a pretty good age for that to happen. Because you know your parents a little bit. But for me, at least, I, I hold open the real possibility that there are some eight-year-olds who are more in touch with things and um, than I was. But for me, at least, the, the magnitude of that loss uh, revealed itself over time. I was not, for example, on the day that my mom told me that our father had been killed. I was not capable of doing much besides thinking I would never see him again. I didn't understand what that would mean um, for all the times in my life when I really wanted to have my father there. And thank goodness, because that would have been overwhelming. Um, and in some ways, that's the perspective of an adult, but but it's also a perspective that I that I, I definitely I think also understood at the time that um, my entire universe had been altered in a profound way. Uh, but it didn't. I, I definitely knew that that was true. It's interesting. At the same time, like in your poem Gloria Mundi, uh, some of your thoughts at least how I took them about mortality that um, in a way that, that we are one of many um, you write our moment here is small. I am too a worldly thing among worldly things. One part per seven billion make me smaller, still repurpose my body, mix me with soil and seed. So I, I was curious about, not that it's a juxtaposition because we live in paradox, but maybe some of the thoughts that went into this poem and you're talking about, you know, if you can make it to my funeral, great. If, if you can't, dance for me wherever you are. So I hold two truths kind of at the same time. There's a, a rabbinical teaching, as I understand it, about, you know, having a, a note in each one of your pockets. Uh, one says something like I am but a speck of dust and the other is something like the world was created for me and I I have a similar belief uh, it's that the, the, my smallest gesture matters way more than I could possibly understand that the smile that we give to the weary traveler may change the course of their day in a profound way um, and that I am 
insignificant. I, I hold those two ideas at the same time. And some of that is kind of a raging against the the Western, the, especially the kind of the current Western selfishness. It's I wasn't thinking about it at the time, but right now the images from India really help kind of bring forward that idea to me. I, I want my time here to be purposeful. Um, I want to have a, a positive impact on the people around me and on the community that I live in. And I want to hold meaningful conversations. I feel so lucky to have a platform to do that. And I also feel that I'm not really all that important. It's it's a it's a really hard idea to articulate. So and and I'm I'm so grateful to you to kind of juxtaposing that to uh, after you left. So I'm simultaneously saying this this absence of this one person is so huge in my life. And then also I'm I'm not all that important. There are so many people here right now. So many people have lived and will live um, after I'm gone. Uh, and I, I think it's it's kind of my way of saying that, that I'm going to continue to do to, to embrace those small gestures and those small moments. I'm going to keep writing poems. Uh, and I'm going to do that aware that, um, or at least seeing myself as 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 one part of a very large group of people who are here at a very small moment in time. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Let's talk a little bit about part two. So as you get into part two, as I mentioned earlier, it feels more grounded, there's more kind of societal pain, more poems written directly toward the plight of the young black man and the black man that's been hurt by the prison system or hurt by police violence, all too often killed in police violence. You have poems to Freddie Gray and George Floyd and poetry about the country of America and fatherhood. And I was wondering if you would read my ultimate thought is this. Yes. My ultimate thought is this. In conversation, a friend from my youth who worked for a time as a prison guard saw fit to say, Michael, you don't know much. 
Lots of these convicts are just feral beasts. On hearing his words, I surrendered faith. I wound myself up so I could pounce down on his beliefs, pinned him down hard, showed him my teeth, growled in his face from my far better view. I despised his and him. Chewing on the cheek of his claim, the next to last thought to enter my head was this. Only a beast sees a man as a beast. Do you want to tell me more about this? I felt just like you. I was like growling. <laughs> yeah, so there's, so I was looking at, this is, this, by the way, it's, it's a thing that really happened. Um, one of the things I love about poetry and about a collection of poetry is that uh, I can talk about true things in things that really happened and in things that I made up. I did not, for example, drive around admonishing strangers. I did not water my neighbor's garden at night. Um, but I did have a conversation with a friend from my youth who worked as a prison guard. And I teach poetry in prisons. And he was telling me I'm naive and I don't understand how these people really are and that they're wild. And um, I was disagreeing with him and I also was really angry with him for that view. And I thought it was awful and I was looking down on him and I was thinking that he was a wild beast. And then I realized I'm doing the same thing he is. Uh, and I, I'm, you know, I, one of the things that I, I want to talk about, I think probably more than anything, I, I love to write about community and what prevents us from being a human community. And I like to write about empathy. And I, when I walked away from that conversation, looking down on my buddy who worked as a prison guard and um, then as a truck driver, and you know, I'm a, I'm a poet. Like, come on. So I, I had the all the benefit of of education and things that he did not have. And my friend is white, by the way. And looking down on him, and he's looking down on other people. And I'm like, what are we doing? Like, why are we doing this? And I'm no better. I'm no better than my friend. I've I've made the same error he has made, and from that I get understanding, and I also get empathy. I think that we're we're prone to the same errors many of us human beings are. And that there's a tremendous value in seeing that and realizing it. And um, I thought about my friend differently as I was writing this poem. Uh, and myself, I thought about myself differently too. In your poem, which is a little tiny hard to, to it's, it's a little hard to talk about, because of its form, but I'd like to talk to about another black man killed in police custody dies after coma. If you're yeah. open to that. Yeah. Yeah. And I call it, um, black man dies after coma. But, right. Um, you're right. That, that form makes it hard to read and hard to talk about. I just did the audiobook, just recorded the audiobook for worldly things. And I had to type it twice. Um, what I'm imagining in this poem is that there's a hypothetical journalist who's writing about the death of Freddie Gray and a hypothetical editor behind that journalist translating the journalist's more human 
presentation into traditional newspaper reportage, um, where the journalist makes an effort to indict the police, to um, only report what is actually known about what happened rather than speculate, or present Freddie Gray as a full person um, who had a mother and sisters and um, the editor changes those things. And even what what could be presented neutrally becomes pejorative. So assumptions are made about the neighborhood that he lived in and things like that. So if you look at the title, it says another black man killed in police custody dies after coma. But then you go back and you strike through another black killed in police custody. So even though you can see all the words, it ends up being called man dies after coma. And those words are in bold. And so you do this throughout where it might say Baltimore, Maryland, and then that's crossed out in exchange for the neighborhood or police officers abused, you cross out abused and write apprehended. So I just wanted to set up like physically what it looked like. Yeah. Thanks for doing, thanks for doing that. And um, this is kind of also the merger of my two identities. At the time that I wrote this, I was working in the legal department at a logistics company and I was primarily negotiating and writing contracts and and managing the flow of contracts through the organization and redlining and uh, is a common way that contracts are negotiated. You get the document, you take out what doesn't work for you, you add in bold print what does. Uh, And so um, I was thinking about Freddie Gray and and learning about the circumstances of his death and who he was. Um, and in a lot of what was reported, you know, knife is accelerated to switchblade. Uh, neutral terms are used about police actions that are um, specific and harmful and could be described specifically. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm reading 15 newspaper articles to put together a composite, uh, but the majority of them are kind of along the lines of man dies after coma. Like, what happened to Freddie Gray was almost an act of God. And, and this happens a lot. It happened with George Floyd. It's, you know, in, in a certain imagination, Derek Chauvin had the misfortune of kneeling on George Floyd's neck for nine and a half minutes right before he was about to die from some other cause, high blood pressure or addiction issues. Um, and, and how work hard we work to kind of justify institutional violence. And I wanted to indict the media for its role in that, Um, how quick they are to quietly sanction behavior that is absolutely morally bankrupt. Um, You know, Freddie Gray was given a rough ride, handcuffed and put in the back of a van and subjected to hard stops and sudden turns. And um, we should report that. We should report the truth of that. And I understand, of course, that at the time we're reporting on these things, the truth can be difficult to access. But when it becomes known, um, it should be reported. But, but separate from all that, every time a person is killed, that's a real person. They're not a suspect. Um, that's someone's son. That's someone's sibling. That's someone's friend. 
and um, in the same way that we work to to justify police action, we work to kind of erase the truth of of those lives. And and I wanted to I wanted to indict that that tendency. I just want there to be a day where you can just write about all these people getting like scholarships to college and winning cooking <laughs> contests, and wouldn't that be right. awesome? Yeah. You know, and I yearn for that day. And, and I have this, I have this thing that I do when I read that I think about all the time. In 2015, I heard Patricia Smith read at the Loft Literary Center in Minneapolis. She read for maybe 15 minutes and she just read five or six absolutely devastating poems. She was relentless. And there was a lot about it that was compelling to me. A Black woman reading before a large, mostly white audience in a mostly white city and just telling the truth and indicting whiteness nonstop for 15 minutes. And it, and then she left. And then we all had cake. I have a tendency to read poems about institutional violence and then close with something more nuanced and like, oh, that Michael's a character. I can't, I have a really hard time not softening it up. And and really what I'm not, what I'm trying to do is I'm not trying to make people feel better. I can't do that. What I'm trying to do is I'm trying to be seen as a poet who is, who writes about a lot of things. Now, Patricia Smith has multiple books and you know she's widely known she i think that people understand when she's reading for 20 minutes about racism and whiteness and the wages of racism that she also talks about other things i, I have a tendency to worry that that people will think that that's all i am concerned with and and so i i, I tend to like to throw in other things too but it's also that um, in addition to wanting to point at the truth of ugly things, I want to point at the truth of beautiful things, too. Yeah, I want to talk about how much I love my neighbor. I want to talk about, like, my fondness for ecumenical traditions, even though I myself am not a religious person. I want to write about a lot of things, but I will say that it's really difficult for me not to use my voice to also say, this is wrong. This is ugly. We are all perpetuating this. This has to stop. It, it's, it's hard for me to imagine that there will ever come a time that I'm not doing that. Uh, because it's, as long as it's happening, I'm going to write about it. Your poem, America, is loving me to death, is an acrostic golden shovel yeah which means america's loving me to death if you look down the poem you write that out as the first letter of the line but then the last word of each line is the pledge of allegiance so you have a word from i pledge allegiance also down there uh, tell me about writing that yeah i almost went crazy like I had this idea on a Saturday, I'm like, oh, I know, I'll write an across the golden shovel. Wouldn't that be fun? And I wanted to write, I was working on this 
um, not long after Philando Castile was killed um, in a suburb of St. Paul that's very close to my house, um, two miles from my house, and almost kitty corner from a, a dance studio where my daughter took dance lessons for many years. And I wanted to write about that. And I wanted to write about America. And there, there's a line in the poem, yes or no, Michael, do you love this nation? Uh, and then I answer that by saying that America despises me for my inability to say yes, for, for saying I can't. Um, and that's simultaneously true, and it's not. I mean, I do love America, and, and I'll talk about that in just a second, but I also can't love this violence, and I can't love a land where so many people condone it and support it tacitly and sometimes directly. I mean, there are a lot of Americans who are like absolutely okay with institutional violence, with street-sanctioned assassinations over traffic stops. There's a lot of people, and by the way, because they don't imagine it will happen to them. Well, I don't have that luxury. And what allows it to persist is our tolerance for it. And, and that's super complicated. But the America that I live in, the Minnesota that I live in, is not just one thing. I mean, my family is here. My friends are here. And I live in beautiful communities inhabited by beautiful people. And we talk about bubbles all the time, but I know a lot of people who desire the same kind of world that I do and are as perplexed and affected by this violence as I am and who are agitating for change. And I don't want to pretend like that they don't exist um, uh, because they do, absolutely. But when we talk about America structurally, systematically, in, in its institutions, in its history, and in our inability to look that history right in the face and acknowledge it, it's hard to, to love that America. I can't love that America. I, I love America's promise. I love America's efforts uh, when they're made, but I can't love the America that tears down neighborhoods and kills people in the street and then, you know, tries to make it disappear with polite violence. I don't love that America. I can't. Before we get to the very last things, I wanted to ask you about the cover. It's really astounding. I'll let you describe it and, and tell me a little bit about it. Yeah. On the cover, there are four or five, two, two young men, two black young men are centered and they're looking up at the sky and behind them there are three other men and as it happens they're playing basketball and they're waiting for a rebound and and on the cover the, the net of the basketball hoop cannot be seen but in the original photo by uh, a minneapolis-based photographer named wing young huey you can see the net at the very top um and I was working with Mary Austin Speaker, who's the art director at Milkweed and who designs covers for Milkweed and for other um, uh, publishers. And we just were kind of talking generally about what we wanted to do. And I asked about using art. And um, I, I mean, almost immediately, I had a handful of artists in mind. I really wanted to work with a person of color. Um, I was hoping to work with someone in Minnesota, but I wasn't really set on that. And 
I went to Wayne's page because I've admired his work for years and um, was going through his images. And when I saw this one, it just felt exactly right. Just black young men looking up toward the sky and toward heaven and toward the vastness in both um, really just spoke to me in, in part of one of the conversations that I want to have in the collection and to see myself in them and the future and, and and just all the possibilities. When I when I happened on this photo, I just was I just I I felt like my search was done and we reached out to Wing and I'd I'd kind of been in the mode of, well, he may say no. And 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 also open to other possibilities, not settling on the idea that this one image had to be the image. But when he said yes, I was all for joy. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? Yeah. Um, so I love so many writers. I think like all writers, we read widely and we stumble on people who just matter to us a lot. But um, I want to read a passage from... Pablo Neruda's Nobel Prize speech, uh, which he called Toward the Splendid City. Uh, there's a moment in, in the speech where, so, so the address is very long. <laughs> I love it for its length. And the first, probably 40% of it, is about a journey he took to the remotest parts of Chile, through the mountain country to get to this desolate place and how hard it was to take that journey, like literally machetes cutting a path. And at one point he arrives to a village of people who bathe his travel group and feed them. And they, they as they leave, they try to offer money, which is, they just won't take it. And Pablo Maruda talks about that deathless mountain place as similar to the landscapes of Scandinavia where he was giving the Nobel address. And, I've read this and returned to this for years. I, I read this quite frankly, probably twice a year. I have a low level obsession with it. But, but there's this moment after that, after he talks about that journey, where he writes that during this long journey, I found the necessary components for the making of the poem. There I received contributions from the earth and from the soul. And I believe that poetry is an action ephemeral or solemn, in which there enter as equal partners, solitude and solidarity, emotion and action, the nearness to oneself, the nearness to mankind, and to the secret manifestations of nature. And that, that idea to me articulates what, I'm, what I hope to do in, in my own work the nearness to mankind and the secret manifestations of nature and, and to, to feel connected to other people in, in the work that I do on my own. Um, really what I'm doing is reaching out. That's the whole effort right there. I'm reaching out um, to people I love, to people who confound me. I'm reaching out with this, this just desire to be together, that solidarity, uh, to see the oneness. That's, that's really what I'm trying to do. And when I read Naruda's work, when I read this Nobel address, I feel so inspired 
so motivated. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft. Yeah, for me, that's seismic activities. And it's a long poem, so I won't read it here. But I'll just say that um, in that poem, I, I talk about my father's anger. And then I confront my own anger as a father. Um, and uh, it's a contrapuntal, which is part of why it takes so long to read. But could I share a passage from it? Yes. And can you explain a little bit of what that means? Oh, sure. I do that. I talk in code. So a, a contrapuntal poem, and it can be presented in a variety of different ways, but it's generally set in two columns. And each column is a poem on its own. And you can read them across for a third poem. So poem, poem, and then across for a third poem. And in this one, I have a passage where I write, I loved my father, but he frightened me. I recall being invaded by fear. Once he sent rage like fire into my face. I reeled, staggered and dizzy, burning nerves. I had a hard time keeping my feet on the ground. I tried to figure out what I'd done to deserve total torture. I wanted my father to be a blessing, a miracle for me, something more than my tormentor. And he was beautiful too. Heartbreakingly beautiful. If I remember hitting baseballs one autumn, I probably imagined innocence a shield. I was a child. We were in our backyard, not much later. I'd set my girl down, my rage, a ball I threw. Dad put a hurting on it. Um, and I, I really wanted to present my father in all of his complexity. I wanted to confront my own kind of automatic instinct toward a physical parenting hands. I'm gonna put my hands on my child. I'm gonna set her down and, um, firmly and briskly and meanly and, and with the hope that if I do that, she'll stay in place, which is what I wanted her to do in that particular moment. And then just suddenly confronting this idea that I would replicate um, a model that I, that I despised. I understand it, but I despised it. And that, that poem was without question the hardest poem for me to write, both technically and emotionally. A contrapuntal is hard to manage on its own. If you change something in the left column, it almost always ripples all the way through the poem, but also to just make myself say it. The poet, Denise Smith, I listened to them on a podcast recently, and they said, when they're at the end of the poem, they ask, have I said it? And um, I have kind of a version of that I ask myself. The question I ask myself is, is it real? Um, but for this poem, getting myself to say it was really, really hard. And it took a long time and many, many drafts, north of 40 drafts before I got it to the point where I felt like it was real. Where do you write? I write in the kitchen a lot. We have a house that was built in 1913 and we have a pretty big kitchen but it has yellow walls and white cabinets and it's bright and it has sunlight to the south and to the east and so it's well lit and it's got a big cabinet and accessible snacks 
What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? <laughs> I have to say, I have a lot of, I have a lot of ha- uh, hobbies. My, probably my, I'm furthest from writing when I'm having dinner with friends and just hanging out in that way. But I don't know that I ever am. Um, I'm always distracted by some particular idea. I think some portion to me is always devoted to solutioning some kind of poem or capturing some kind of moment. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? Uh, My wife, my daughter sometimes, but a really integral part of my process is beta readers, uh, friends who know my work and um, can speak to me. And and by the way, I kind of feel like anyone can speak to me candidly about how they're responding to something that I've written or not responding to it. But I have, uh, I write in a generous and talented community of writers here in the Twin Cities who will share time and ideas at the slightest provocation. But I have a poetry group that I'm a part of that helps me a lot. How have you dealt with rejection? Early on, I took it kind of rough. Um, Now, it doesn't really bother me at all. Not every poem is for every journal. Journals can't take every poem. Um, I used to have a mantra that I would say, it has to be the right poem for the right journal, for the right issue, in front of the right editor on the right day. The editor has to be in the right mood. I used to say that all the time. Now I don't even do it. Um, They say yes or no. That can be a commentary on the poem. I think every poem I have is a work in progress, but more often it isn't. and it doesn't have as much to do with me as I think it does. And I, I just kind of, sometimes people say yes, and sometimes they say no. What I'm doing, the poems that I'm writing, almost don't have anything to do with that process. I'm so grateful to editors and publishers and publications and journals for the really important work that they do in helping us share what we've written. But um, my job, the things that I'm working on, the things um, really are unrelated to that for me. What is your favorite word? <laughs> falafel. I like schism a lot and I like savvy, but falafel is my favorite word. That's what I had for dinner last night. Well, it's funny and it's delicious. Hey, thank you so much for talking to me and sharing so much wow. about your poetry. This was great. And really intimate. I hope that's okay to say. I just felt, I don't know, just so close to you in conversation. It's it's interesting because it's one of the things that I try to do when I'm writing. I just want to be close to the reader and, and, and almost imagine myself across the table from them just talking. And I just loved your questions so much and they were probing and caring and, and I just felt so grateful to you for the keen read and for everything you brought to the conversation today. I, I really did. Thank you so much. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing. My guest was Michael Kleber Diggs, author of the poetry collection, Worldly Things. If you like today's show, check out my interview with Saeed Jones, author of the poetry collection, Prelude to Bruise, which tells the story of Boy, a queer African-American child navigating family, gender, desire, and racism in the American South.
You can find that interview and the entire First Draft archive of 300 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interview that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, and more. Join me as I reach for honesty, vulnerability, connection, curiosity, and insights on craft with each episode. I can't tell you enough how much each and every single dollar counts in keeping the show alive. The first tier of support is just $6 a month. So please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with S. Kirk Walsh, Joshua Henkin, Christine Mangan, and Kevin McElvoy. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.